Let's open our Bibles this morning to the book of Judges, chapter number 6, if you would, please. Judges, chapter number 6. I want to, be, want to preach to you this morning a message about one of my favorite Bible characters, a fellow by the name of Gideon. Gideon. If you remember the story of Gideon, he's the guy that God told him to fight against the Midianites to lead an army. There was 130,000 Midianites, and so Gideon gathered an army of 32,000. Now, you do the math, that's uh, a little worse than one to four ratio. Uh, I'm not a military tactician, but that's not a great advantage going into a battle. So he had 32,000 against the 130,000, and God said, you know what, Gideon, you've got too many. So what I want you to do is I want you to tell anybody who doesn't want to fight, who's too scared to fight, or, you know, whatever reason, if they want to leave, they can leave. 22,000 left, leaving Gideon with 10,000. Now he's down to 1 to 13. Not exactly the greatest odds. But still, he's willing to do what God says, and God says, you know what, Gideon? Still too many. So I want you to uh, go down to uh, the brook and, and tell your fellows to take a break and get a drink. And, and all of the ones that, that bend down and drink out of the brook or out of the river like a, like a dog would lap up water, th- those are the ones that are going to be your army. And of the 10,000, only 300 did that. 300 men versus 130,000, and God says, perfect. That's what I want. And that night, they went to where the Midianites were encamped, and Gideon gave each of the 300 men a pitcher and a torch and a trumpet. Again, I'm not a military tactician, but if you're going into a battle, those do not sound like the best weapons to have. But God said, spread out around the valley. And at the signal, everyone's to break their pitcher and show the torch and blow the trumpet and say the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. And when you do that, I'm going to give you the victory. And sure enough, that night, God caused the Midianites to be overcome with terror so that they destroyed themselves. And all that Gideon and his men had to do was basically follow them and take the spoil. And we think about that story. It's so exciting. That's one of those mountain peak stories in the Bible, isn't it? We love to hear about it when we're in Sunday school. And, uh, you know, we love to see that flannel graph or hear the puppets do that or whatever. It's a great story. But what I want us to see from Judges chapter 6 today is that Gideon did not start with that much faith. I mean, you would agree with me that it took a whole lot of faith to follow that crazy of a plan to take 300 men against 130,000. Gideon at that point was a man who had extreme faith in God, but he didn't start that way. In fact, when we first meet Gideon in Judges chapter 6, he's living in fear. And the title of the message this morning is From Fear to Faith. From Fear to Faith. One of the first messages I ever preached when I was a teenager was actually in our um, Christian school in chapel, and I preached on Gideon. Um, just to reassure you, this is not the same message. I've done things a little different since I was in 10th grade. But uh, I love this story because it's such an example to us and inspires us to have faith in God in spite of overwhelming odds. But we need to understand that it took a lot of work on God's part to bring Gideon to the place that he had that much faith. To bring him to that valley of Morah where that epic battle was won. 
We're going to see that when God first met him in Judges 6, he was living in doubt and fear and in worry. But God met him where he was. And God worked in his life to strengthen his faith and to grow that faith so that ultimately Gideon could fulfill God's will. The lesson of the story for us is this. Wherever we are today, God wants to meet us there and help us move on to the next level of faith. Pressing on does not require human grit and determination. It requires holy dependency on God and Holy Spirit-enabled persistency through faith. So let's see how Gideon went from fear to faith. Now, Heavenly Father, help us understand Your Word this morning and take away something that will be a help to us even today. Some of us perhaps are facing some overwhelming situations. Maybe there's some enemies that have set themselves against us and it seems like they are stronger and more powerful and we're doomed to be defeated. May we be encouraged through Gideon's story that you also want to work in our lives to grow and strengthen our faith, to fulfill your will and thereby glorify yourself. And Lord, we pray these sayings in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to notice with me, first of all, the situation of Gideon. We're going to pick up in verse number 11 in Judges chapter 6. It says, There came an angel of the Lord which sat under an oak, which, which was in Ophrah, that pertained unto Joash the Abiezrite, and his son Gideon threshed wheat by the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. Here we are first introduced to this man Gideon, whose story we know so well. But when we first meet him, he is not the conquering general that we come to know him as. He's not the ruling judge who ruled over uh, Israel for about 40 years, who was really in many ways used mightily of the Lord. Instead, we read, uh, when we learn of him, first of all, we find that He's in a, a relatively obscure place, and he's there operating in fear. So first of all, his situation was a place of fear. Israel was at this time suffering because of the consequences of their sin. The book of Judges is a record of the continual spiral of Israel as they would go from worshiping God and being blessed to worshiping idols and being oppressed by foreign invaders. And then they would repent of their sin and God would bless them again and then they would go back to their sin and over and over again. And we find ourselves at the bottom of one of those cycles here as the Israelites have turned from God for some time and God has sent the Midianites in particular in to oppress them as punishment for their sin. They're having to deal with the consequences of their sin. Let's go back to verse number 1 and, and read exactly what this looked like. And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel, and because of the Midianites, the children of Israel made them dens which are in the mountains and caves and strongholds. And so it was when Israel had sown that the Midianites came up and the Amalekites and the children of the east, even they came up against them. 
And they encamped against them and destroyed the increase of the earth till thou come unto Gaza and left no sustenance for Israel, neither sheep nor ox nor ass. For they came up with their cattle and their tents and they came as grasshoppers for the multitude. For both they and their camels were without number. And they entered into the land to destroy it. And Israel was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites. And the children of Israel cried unto the Lord. And it came to pass when the children of Israel cried unto the Lord because of the Midianites, that the Lord sent a prophet unto the children of Israel, which said unto them, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you forth out of the house of bondage. And I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of all that oppressed you and drave them out from before you and gave you their land. And I said unto you, I am the Lord your God. Fear not the gods of the Amorites in whose land ye dwell, but ye have not obeyed my voice. Here we are told specifically what the situation was in Israel at this time. For seven years, they had been under the oppression of the Midianites particularly, as well as some of the other uh, people groups surrounding them. And it describes for us how that these groups would come in like a plague of locusts. They would come in with their armies and with their sheep and with their cattle and with their camels and with their people and they would come in and they would just decimate the land. They would take every bit of the crops, they would take all the food, all the, uh, all the everything that Israel needed to exist. And it says in this passage that because of this, Israel was greatly impoverished. Now that kind of sets the backdrop then for verse number 11 when we find that this angel of the Lord comes to Gideon and when he finds Gideon, Gideon is threshing wheat in a wine press in order to hide it from the Midianites. He was in a place of fear. Now his fear was rational from a human standpoint. If you were in his situation, what might you be doing? You would probably be doing everything you could to take care of your family, make sure you had enough food to eat, which would probably probably mean hiding whatever food you have. And that's what he's doing here. He's secretly threshing wheat. He's trying to hide it from the Midianites because they just need something to eat. So we don't necessarily blame him from a human standpoint of experiencing fear, but we must understand that fear is never of God. Caution is good. It's good to be smart. It's good to, uh, to recognize danger and take appropriate measures to avoid it. Even Proverbs says that a prudent man foreseeth the evil and hideth himself, but the simple pass on and are punished. I'm not advocating that we be ignorant in how we operate, but we need to understand that when fear is a controlling factor in our life, it's evidence of a lack of faith. 2 Timothy 1 and verse number 7, For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. If you are being controlled by fear, you are not being controlled by the Holy Spirit. You are not operating in the power of God. He was in a place of fear. Number two, he was in a place of doubt. We continue reading in verses 12 through 13, and we notice now what this angel of the Lord said to him. Verse 12, The angel of the Lord appeared unto him, and said unto him, The Lord is with thee, thou mighty man of valor. And Gideon said unto him, O my Lord, if the Lord be with us, why then is all this befallen us? 
And where be all his miracles which our fathers told us of, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord hath forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. This angel of the Lord appears and at first it's important to understand Gideon does not know that this is a messenger from the Lord. He doesn't know that he is communicating with God. It's my belief that this is actually a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ as he in just a little bit will be directly uh, addressed as the Lord. But Gideon doesn't know that yet. All he knows is here's this stranger who greets him with these very interesting words, The Lord is with thee, thou mighty man of valor. Think about that. What is he doing? He is hiding, threshing wheat to further hide it from the Midianites. Not exactly the kind of guy in the kind of a situation that you would say, there's a mighty man of valor. But the angel of the Lord says, the Lord is with you, thou mighty man of valor. And Gideon's response is very telling. He responds in verse number 13 by basically saying, if God is with us, then why is all this bad stuff happening? Now be honest with yourself. Have you ever asked a similar question when going through a rough time in life? Have you ever wondered, if God is really with me, then why is all this bad stuff happening? Why am I experiencing this pain and loss and confusion? Why does it seem like wicked people are gaining the upper hand? If God is really with us, then shouldn't life be much better? That is the place that Gideon's in. And I think if we're honest, we can identify with that. We wouldn't look down our noses and say, oh, I would never feel that way. Because in his situation, you have to understand, that would have been a great temptation and one that was easy to get into, to give into. Notice he goes on further to say, where be all his miracles which our fathers told us of? You know what he's basically saying there? We haven't seen God do anything. We've only heard about it. If God's with us, then, then why don't we see Him doing something? Why is it that we just have to accept what other people have told us instead of seeing it for ourselves? And then the end of the verse, he says a definitive statement, but now the Lord hath forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. That, that statement's half true, half false. It was true that God had delivered them into the hand of the Midianites. And it was done because they had rebelled against God. It was not true that God had forsaken them. But you see, that's what our carnal flesh likes to think sometimes, is that when things are going bad, well, God must have abandoned us. God will never abandon you. If you are a child of God... He will never leave you nor forsake you. That's the truth of the matter. Gideon doubted that truth. He was in a place of doubt. And it certainly did look like God had forsaken them. Poverty, oppression, terrorism, those things were the dominant forces in their lives. I mean, they were being governed by fear, essentially. But that did not mean that God had forsaken them. You've probably heard this before, but just because there's clouds in the sky doesn't mean that the sun is gone. It's still there. 
I know the few times that I have flown on an airplane, it's always amazing to me when you, maybe if you take off and it's cloudy out and the plane gets going and, and you begin that climb and I'm one of those crazy people. I love the takeoff and landing of, of, of flying. Some people, that's like terror. I love it. It's like a roller coaster, you know? It's like, woo, I might die. I don't know. It's great. Even you take off and you're climbing and you're climbing and it's a little bit cloudy out, but all of a sudden you enter the cloud. And when you enter the cloud, it's like you can't see anything, you know? You look out the window and it's just like white fog. But then just a few moments later, you come through that cloud on the other side and it's just bright sky everywhere. You ever, you ever seen that before? You ever experienced that? I mean, it could be thunderstorm, rainy, dark at the ground, but above the clouds, the sun's shining. It's the same way with God in our lives. Sometimes it's rainy, sometimes it's stormy, sometimes it's dark. And those things kind of obscure our vision of God, but He's still there. And above the clouds, He's still shining just as much as always. God is always with us. He's always working for our good. He knows what is best for us. And never doubt this. God always loves us. Romans chapter 8, verse 35, Who shall separate us from the love of God? From the love of Christ, it says specifically. Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or fam famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for thy sakes we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. He was in a place of fear. He was in a place of doubt. But then notice number three about his situation. He was in a place of insufficiency. A place of insufficiency. Look at verse 14. And the Lord looked upon him and said, Go in this thy might, and thou shalt save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have not I sent thee? And he said unto him, O my Lord, wherewith shall I save Israel? Behold, my family is poor in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said, Surely I will be with thee, and thou shalt smite the Midianites as one man. Again, still at this point, Gideon does not know that he's addressing the Lord. But God says to him in verse 14, Go, I'm going to save Israel from the Midianites by you. And his answer is, Me? No way I can do that. I'm poor. I'm from an insignificant family and an insignificant tribe, and I'm the insignificant son. I am a nobody. I don't have the resources. I don't have the experience. I don't have the training. I've got nothing. I can't do what you're saying I should do. It's not possible. 
He questioned whether his resources were enough. He said, I'm I'm poor, I'm a nobody, I'm insignificant, I can't do it. And can I say to you that that was not a bad thing? He had learned the first lesson of sufficiency, which is we are insufficient. Can I tell you very directly this morning that whatever God wants you to do, you can't do it. And I don't say that to discourage you. I say that to get you to realize that you need God in order to do what God wants you to do. As long as you think, I've got this. I'm good enough. I can do it. Yeah, Lord, what do you want me to do? Yeah, sure. I'll take care of it. Got it. Done. If that's your attitude, you will never accomplish God's will for your life. You can't do it. Without Him, ye are nothing. Like my old pastor used to say, we're a zero with the ring rubbed out. That's what we are without God. We're nothing. We have nothing. We can do nothing. And Gideon actually is starting at a good place when it comes to our sufficiency. He had learned that he wasn't enough. It took seven years of oppression, perhaps, for him to finally get to the place that he was like, I can't do this. But that's the place he was at when God met him. He'd learned the first lesson, but he needed to learn the second lesson of sufficiency. The first lesson is, we are not enough. The second lesson is, God is enough. And this is where Gideon needed to take the next step. This is where Gideon needed to learn to have faith in God and just trust God, that God was going to work through him to do what he needed to do. Paul said this in 2 Corinthians 3 and verse number 5, Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God. You are not enough. God is. So if you have God, you have all that you need. You're more than a conqueror, as Romans 8.37 says. You have everything that you need. You are complete in Him, according to the book of Colossians. God has infinite resources. So when we are on His side, we win. Period. It's not even a matter of if we might eventually win. We've already won. The victory's already ours with God. He was called, Gideon was called of God to lead the Israelites to victory. God didn't say, I want you to try and deliver Israel. God said, you will deliver Israel. He didn't say, Gideon, I've got a hard job for you, and I want you to do your best, and just know that if you fail, it's okay, because it's a really big task. No. God said, you're going to have the victory. Why? Because God was going to be with him through it. Already God is beginning to work in Gideon's life to grow his faith, to strengthen his faith, to take him from fear to a place of faith. God's already working and God, knowing the beginning from the end, could say definitively to Gideon, this is what's going to happen. The only thing Gideon had to do was follow the Lord's leading. Just obey what God said and the victory was his. You see, when God calls... He enables. 
Faithful is he who calleth you who also will do it, 1 Thessalonians 5.24 says. You know what that means? It means that whatever God's will for your life is, it's not up to you to achieve it. It's up to you to submit to God, to work through you to accomplish it. You know what that looks like? It looks like simple obedience. The Lord says this, do this, yes, Lord, and you do that. The Lord says don't do this, you say yes, Lord, and you don't do that. It's simple obedience by faith. And there's going to be times like it will be for Gideon where God's going to expect something of you and it's not going to make any sense. God's going to tell you to do something, lead you to do something, and you say, that's crazy. But by simple obedience, you say, all right, Lord, this is what you want. I'm going to do it. And there's going to be other times where you really think one way should be the way to go. And God's going to close the door. He's going to say, no, don't go that way. Don't do that. And you're going to think, but this looks perfect. This is exactly what I think we should do. But the Lord says no, and you say, okay, Lord. That's what it looks like to live in the power of God and to let God work through you. It's not up to you to perform. It's simply up to you to follow God's leading. So he started in a place of fear, in a place of doubt, in a place of insufficiency. Understanding that then, notice with me secondly the sign for Gideon. We saw his situation. Let's notice the sign now. I've heard preachers really go off on Gideon for asking the Lord for signs. He does it here and then famously with the fleece in just a little while in his story. And I've heard preachers really rail on him. And I don't do that because I'm thinking if I'm Gideon, I needed all the assurance I could get. And in verse number 17, he asked the Lord for a sign. He says, he said unto him, If now I found grace in thy sight, show me a sign that thou talkest with me. Again, at this point, he's not positive. He doesn't know that he's talking to the Lord. That hasn't been revealed to him yet. He goes on, verse 18, Gideon speaking still, Depart not hence, I pray thee, until I come unto thee, and bring forth my present, and set it before thee. And he said, I will tarry until thou come again. And Gideon went in and made a kid and unleavened cakes, of an ephah of flour, the flesh he put in a basket and put in broth in a pot and brought it unto him under the oak and presented it. Now this was a sacrifice on Gideon's part. Remember, they're poor, they're hungry, they're starving. But he's, I believe, beginning to understand this is a, at least, at the very least, a very special messenger from the Lord. So he goes and prepares this food. He brings it back. Verse number 20. The angel of God said unto him, Take the flesh and the unleavened cakes and lay them upon this rock and pour out the broth. What? This good food, you want me to put it on a rock and, and pour out this yummy broth that I just made? Yes, put it up there. He does this. Then the angel of the Lord, verse 21, put forth the end of the staff that was in his hand and touched the flesh and the unleavened cakes, and there rose up fire out of the rock and consumed the flesh and the unleavened cakes. Then the angel of the Lord departed out of his sight. And when Gideon perceived that he was an angel of the Lord, Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for because I have seen an angel of the Lord face to face. Was it wrong for him to ask for a sign? It's my belief that it wasn't. God gave him this sign to strengthen his faith, to assure him that these instructions were not just the babbling of a random stranger who happened by that day. 
But these were directions from God. An important question to consider then is this. Does God still give signs today? Think about that. If somebody were to ask you, a co-worker, a friend, does God still give signs today? How would you answer? I think it's important that we answer that, that question correctly. If by sign someone means that God is going to perform a miracle, and a miracle is defined as altering the laws of nature in order to show you a sign, That's what happened in this passage. Fire does not usually spontaneously come out of rocks, and strangers do not usually instantly vanish in the air, right? So this was a miracle. And if by sign we mean, will God do a miracle? Will He suspend the laws of nature temporarily for me so that I can know what His will is? The answer is no, God does not do that still today. We have the completed Word of God. We have all the general revelation we will ever need There is no need for God to do this kind of thing for us anymore. But if by sign you mean, will God clearly direct me so that I know for sure what His will is, such as through specific answers to prayer, then the answer is absolutely yes. Absolutely yes. God does guide His people with just as much clarity today as he did for Gideon then, he just does it differently. God will make his will so plain to you that you cannot miss it if you're honestly seeking it. That's who God is. He delights when his children want to follow his will, so he's not going to make it hard for him. He's not going to say, I want you to follow my will, but I'm not going to tell you what it is. Good luck finding, finding it out. That's not God. So does He still give us signs? Not miracles, but God will make His will so plain that it'll just be just as good as if He put a literal sign up on the interstate with your name on it, so and so do such and such. God wants to guide us. Jeremiah 33.3 says, Call unto me, and I will answer thee, and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. The counterpart to that in the New Testament is James 1 and verse number 5. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, which giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. God worked so that Gideon would have full assurance of what God's will was. God will do the same for you if you're willing to follow him. So we've seen his situation. We've seen this sign. So now let's notice the start of Gideon. Now that this sign has been confirmed, Gideon realizes that this was God talking to him, that the Lord had spoken to him. He's afraid. Again, he's still operating in fear. He's afraid. Oh no, I've seen an angel of the Lord. God's going to have to kill me now. I'm doomed. I'm done. That's it. And God says, notice verse 23, The Lord said unto him, Peace be unto thee. Fear not. Thou shalt not die. It's all right, Gideon. It's okay. Calm down. Calm down. It's all right. You're not going to die. So what did Gideon do? Verse 24, he built an altar there unto the Lord and called it Jehovah Shalom. The Lord is peace. Unto this day it is yet an Ophrah of the Abiezrites. And it came to pass on the same night that the Lord said unto him, all right, now here God's going to give Gideon his very first assignment. What's it going to be? Is he going to sneak into the camp of the Midianites and assassinate their general? 
Is he going to you know, secretly, covertly go out and amass an army of tens of thousands? No, God's going to give him an even, even more dangerous assignment. He's going to tell him to attack a defenseless statue. Notice, the Lord said unto him, Take thy father's young bullet, even the second bullock of the seven years, and throw down the altar of Baal that thy father hath, and cut down the grove that is by it, and build an altar unto the Lord thy God upon the top of this rock in the ordered place. And take the second bullock and offer a burnt sacrifice with the wood of the grove, which thou shalt cut down. Then Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord said unto him. And so it was, because he feared his father's household and the men of the city, that he would not do it by day, that he did it by night. And when the men of the city arose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was cast down and the grove was cut down that was by it. And the second bullock was offered upon the altar that was built. And they said one to another, Who hath done this thing? And when they inquired and asked, they said, Gideon the son of Joash hath done this thing. Then the men of the city said unto Joash, Bring out thy son that he may die, because he hath cast down the altar of Baal, because he hath cut down the grove that was by it. And Joash said unto all that stood against him, Will ye plead for Baal? Will ye save him? He that will plead for him, let him be put to death whilst it is yet morning. If he be a god, let him plead for himself, because one hath cast down his altar. Therefore on that day he called him Jerubel, saying, Let Baal plead against him, because he hath thrown down his altar. So the first assignment that God gives Gideon is not a military assignment. It's essentially a spiritual assignment. He says, Gideon, I want you to go and I want you to destroy the place of worship that your father built for the false god Baal. There's an altar, there's a grove. Very likely there could have been some kind of an image there as well, a statue or an idol. God says, I want you to go and destroy that and build another altar to me. There's a significance here of rededication wholly to the Lord, of casting down the idol and, and turning back to God wholly and completely. But notice how Gideon did this. He didn't walk out first thing in the morning with a sledgehammer, say, all right, I'm going to go tear down this altar. No, he got ten of his own private servants. And in the middle of the night, they snuck out to where his father's idol grove was and they destroyed it in the middle of the night. And they didn't tell anybody. They kept it a secret. Why? Because it says in verse number 27 that he feared his father's household. He's still operating in fear. But now he's taken a step in the right direction because now that fear is no longer preventing him from obeying. He goes out and is done, he does this. The next day, the men of the city wake up and they notice that their, that their uh, Baal church has been destroyed. They're like, who did this? Did you do this? I didn't do this. And they start asking around and they found out it was Gideon. So they go to Gideon's dad's house and knock on the door. Joash comes to the door, one of the servants maybe, and says, bring out Gideon. He's destroyed the altar and we're going to kill him this morning. And his dad's response was very wise. His dad said, you know what? If Gideon destroyed Baal's grove and altar, then why don't you let Baal take care of it? Hmm? I mean, if Baal's such a great God, can't, can't he get his vengeance, Right? Leave Gideon alone. If Baal is really God, he'll take care of it. That's in essence what he's saying. Will ye plead 
for Baal, verse 31, will ye save him? What a wonderful question. Are you going to rescue Baal from Gideon? I don't know about you, but I don't want a God I have to rescue. <laughs> it reminds me of the story when the Philistines brought the ark into the temple of Dagon. You remember that? They, and then they came in the next morning and the idol to Dagon had, been, had fallen on the ground face first in front of the, front of the ark of the covenant. And so they, they went in and they propped their God back up. <laughs> like, oh, God fell over. Let's put him back up. And you read that story and it's like, are you crazy? Really? And then they come in the next day, and sure enough, Dagon's fallen over again, only this time he's all broken apart. And they're like, you know what? Maybe we need to get rid of that ark thing. <laughs> this isn't working out too good. I'm so glad I don't need a God, or I don't have a God who needs to be propped up. <laughs> I don't have a God who needs to be saved or rescued. Will ye save him? I'm so glad that we serve a God who saves us. A God who sent His Son to die on the cross so that we could be rescued from our sin. That's our God. And because of this, this event, Gideon got a nickname, Jeroboam. It literally means bale fighter. Not bullfighter, you know, toro, toro. But bale fighter. He's fighting now against Baal. He has gone from being an unknown son in an unknown family in a little-known tribe to now being known as the Baal fighter. That's pretty cool. It's pretty cool how God's already working in Gideon's life. And this, really, compared to what he's going to do, is not that significant. This is kind of just a local thing. And really, he just went in the middle of the night and broke an altar down, cut down some trees maybe, that kind of thing. Not a big deal. But God was using this instance in Gideon's life to build up to bigger things. He still had some fear. We see that in the story. But that fear has less control now. The important thing is that he obeyed here. And if he had not obeyed here, then he would not have been ready to obey later when God would tell him, I want you to take these 300 and go assault 130,000. It's the little things that often we dismiss, that we discount, that ultimately determine the big things in our life. Luke 16.10 puts it this way, He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much. And he that is unjust in that which is least is unjust also in much. Now notice in our story from chapter 6 that the next step he took was bigger and bolder. Verse 33 then all the Midianites and Amalekites and the children of the east were gathered together and went over and pitched in the valley of Jezreel. But the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon, and he blew a trumpet, and Abiezer was gathered after him, and he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh, who also gathered after him. And he sent messengers unto Asher and unto Zebulun and unto Naphtali, and they came up to meet them. He's gone from, in this chapter alone, from hiding the wheat from the Midianites, to throwing down the altar of Baal, and now he's gathering an army. He's standing up, blowing the trumpet, issuing decrees, gathering men to him to fight against the enemies of God. So sometime after these events, 
Midianites gathered together for another assault against Israel. They knew what was coming. This had happened over and over again the last seven years. They're coming in like a swarm of locusts. They're going to decimate the land. They're going to take everything. We're going to be left poor and hungry again. But this time, instead of running and hiding, Gideon stands up, blows a trumpet and says, let's fight. How did that happen? I'll tell you how. God changed him. God changed him. Gideon didn't change himself. It was the Lord's working in his heart that took him from a place of fear to a place of faith. What I want you to see with me from this story this morning is that Gideon did not take a giant leap from fear to faith. He got there step by step. God met him where he was. God worked with him to grow him and to strengthen his faith. And because Gideon was willing to follow God in the small stuff, later he saw God do big things in his life. Like Gideon, we must learn that we are not sufficient, but God is. We must then follow God's leading in the small stuff of life, or we will never be ready for the big stuff later. We must learn that when God calls us, He enables. These are the basic truths that Gideon had to learn as God took him from fear to faith. Those basic truths that are the foundation of a monumental faith in God like Gideon had. And you might be here this morning and you're thinking, I don't have that kind of faith. Maybe not. But you have the same kind of God, the same God who worked in Gideon's life, who took Gideon from a place of fear to faith, and God can do it for you. But you cannot make the giant leap of faith unless you are first willing to walk by faith. So like Gideon, will you let God take you from fear to faith?